This is the Improved Photography Podcast, episode number 203. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your first purchase. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I am joined by um, Brent Bergherm from Brent Rents Lenses. Hey, Brent. And Hello, also, a new voice on the podcast is Aaron King, a photographer in Utah. Hey, guys. Well, we have uh, some exciting things to talk about this week. We are going to talk about the uh, Improved Photography Holiday Gift Guide for Photographers. This is the gear to lust over over the next uh, couple months and to subtly suggest to your spouse as a Christmas gift. Uh, we're also going to talk about five reasons not to shoot Fuji um, and shooting GoPros into the stratosphere. Uh, so let's get started with the uh, Improved Photography Holiday Gift Guide. Uh, we released this on the website just a couple um, a couple weeks ago. Um, you can check it out at improvephotography.com. It's even, you'll find it right on the homepage still. Um, but what we did is um, me and many of the hosts of the Improved Photography podcast um, got on there and we all recommended uh, what our one favorite gift for a photographer would be with all different budgets from $25 to $50 to $100 to $500 and 1000 and then the sleep on a bed of money uh, budget. So what we want to do in this segment of the podcast is talk about some of our favorites uh, from the holiday gift guide and... Um and uh, we'll, we'll debate it out what the very best gift is to give to our hypothetical photographer <laughs> listener. So, uh, Aaron, what'd you think? $25 budget. You got to buy a gift for a photographer. What's it going to be? It's going to be gaffer's tape because in every situation you come across gaffer's tape needs. I'm out there with my tripod and if I don't have gaffer's tape on the outside of that tripod, it's because the last time I went out with my camera, I used it all up. I haven't found a trip yet where I don't end up pulling some gaffer's tape off and using it to plug in some mic, plug in some camera part, or just make sure that the scenery around me is fitted. And I have not stopped using it for astrophotography as I use it on my focusing. When I put my lens out there and get it in the right spot, for the stars i like to tape it off so i don't bump it in the dark that's not a bad idea i that happens to me regularly when i especially when i was shooting a dslr and that focus at night was harder to find uh that is really nice to be able to tape off your focus now it's not such a big deal because almost i can almost always just auto focus in the dark uh with the fuji but um but that is nice. So, so what else do you use it for, though? Because I always see people going crazy over uh, gaffer's tape. You know what's crazy about gaffer's tape is Sandy Duro. She <laughs> loves this stuff. I just never use it. So what else do you use it for? You tape off your your uh, your focus ring when you want to keep your focus from moving. What else do you use it for? Well, things that come apart, things that break, especially in my situation, because I'm out there with a GoPro and a mic, and I'm also out there with lighting. And so I'm working with stuff that's not working together well. And I use the gaffer's tape to make sure that these things are compatible. I have a little selfie stick on a GoPro. And it, whenever it gets into the dark times, I like to plug in a, an LED light to what is a small one of those little battery chargers for your iPhone. I like to wrap that around the selfie stick with the gaffer's tape. And then I have to tape the actual part to the GoPro right up at the top. So I'm always using it in my situation, doing videography as well as using your camera. Do you use it, Brent? Do you use gaffer's tape while you're out? 
I do use Gaffer's Tape and Aaron Stoll by choice for the $25 <laughs> bracket as well. But that's that okay. means we can pay for each other for presents. We know what we want. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> buy it for each other. That's nice. One of the problems I think we have as photographers when we tell our loved ones, hey, I'd like this, and we put it on our list, they're probably going to have no idea what this stuff is. Oh, yeah. And so we need to send them links. We need to get, help them understand it's not duct tape. It's not masking <laughs> tape. It's gaffer's tape. There's a very speci- uh, special uh, item here that we're looking for. I use it uh, pretty much like what he was saying, whether it's cords, whether it's your flashlight, I don't care what it is. I still have some attached to my leg of my tripod because I didn't want to take a whole roll. So before I went out on a trip, I just go and uh, put a little bit around my tripod. It's probably about five feet, but I can just peel it off if I need a little bit. It's right there all the time for me to utilize and whatever you're, whatever scenario you're looking at. I've got the GoPro like Aaron does and sometimes you just need to tape that sucker down. So it works just about anywhere. All right. While you guys were talking, I just checked out on Amazon. I just bought myself a little gaffer's tape. I, I have no idea what I'm going to use this for, but you guys <laughs> tell me it's useful. My, my, I don't know. My stuff doesn't really break. I, I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to put this in my camera bag and Hey, we're going to remind Siri. Let's see. Siri, remind me on March 8, 2017 to talk on the podcast and see if I ever use the gaffer's tape. Okay. Be careful, too, because it's also available in multiple colors, and you can just go crazy with it. Oh, of course <laughs> I want improved photography red. That's right. That, and you got to have the orange, the green, the blue. All right. Well, my pick for the $25 um, budget is a triangular reflector with a handle. I don't actually use reflectors very often. In fact, really, really rarely. But what I do use very often is a scrim. I'll just use a reflector mm-hmm. to just to just block off the light uh, above someone. I Almost every time I'm shooting portraits outside, that's uh, it's mandatory. Uh, that I, it just helps you get to neutral, uh, to, to just block off the, the natural light from the person if you're taking portraits outside, and then you can add flash or do whatever you want to. Uh, I, so for me, that's that, that would be not my number one pick. Just get a triangular reflector, one that's nice, easy to hold with a handle. Or you could tape it to something because you got gaffers. Tape. That's right. That's exactly tape it. Right. To, you could climb up in a tree, tape it, and you're set. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Next is the $50 budget. Um, for me, I would definitely, no question, pick the three-month Audible subscription. Uh, I am an addict with Audible. I can't be stopped. I need some help. Uh, I, I'm buying like six bu- six books a month um, on, on Audible. I need to like, this is becoming a major budget item. Uh, but right now I am reading Shoe Dog from Phil Knight about the creation of Nike. I just love reading, uh, you know, business books, all kinds of stuff on there. Um, photography, not so much. I don't think there are any photography books on there actually. Um, but but uh, if you're in, doing business anything like that i love audible if you're going to get something that is fifty dollars and you don't buy audible because i really considered audible myself first i would get the Velo wireless shutter release because you find yourself constantly having to go out and either light a situation maybe use aerosol spray fog or maybe you're going to go out there and get in the shot and having that reach of being able to put yourself in the shot without having to have a buddy there handy is really nice so this is um, the one that's on the holiday gift guide is a 10 pin connection for Nikon. Do they also have a, a Canon? I use a Velo. Uh, I use a Velo. Tr- 
intervalometer and they had it for the Canon. So I believe that they would make it for the wireless shutter release. I just don't own one myself. Okay. Uh, yeah, it looks like they, oh, they do make one for Fuji. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Guys, gosh, how much is this episode going to cost me? It, it has to be stopped. Christmas must be stopped, says the Grinch. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, okay. Buy it. All right. What's next? What do you got, Brent? What are you going to do to my budget? Actually on my list is the peak design camera slide. Uh, while I like my, I have a nice padded, uh, camera strap, but this item, uh, they have, they basically built it into their system since I love their, I love their, uh, messenger bag. Uh, I'm going to give their camera slide a try. So if I don't get it from any of my family members, I'm going to just buy it myself. Very cool. Uh, that, that's one that I have definitely taken a long look at, but I, I think I'm going to just skip because I, I, with the rotation 180 backpacks, I feel like I already have pretty quick access to my camera yeah. and so yeah. that, that's not not so much of a problem for me but but attempting one yep yeah i spent months carrying mine around not this actual one but another type of slide where it was nice and easy pulled up to my chest i used it the first month and then it sat in my bag until i decided it was it was not worth the wait mm. All right, um, mine for the for oh I already give mine audible for the fifty for the hundred dollar budget. Now now we're starting to get up there. Now we now we can buy some pretty cool stuff. Um, ah, boy, this is a tough one. What do you have to say, Aaron, on this one? Hundred dollar gift for a photographer. What would it be? I think if Nick's awake in Iceland and paying attention, he'd be really proud right now because the NRS boundary sock is what I would get. I was wanting to <laughs> stole another one from me. <laughs> Take that, Brent. I was in Zion following Jim Harmer's photographer's guide going through Zion, and I didn't quite read well enough that the hike to Canary Creek Falls was going to be in water anytime. Oh, it's so cold it water too. Hiking boots. Oh. And so if I had the NRS boundary sock, that hike would have been so much easier. All the crazy end arounds and under roots and climbing around boulders that I did just to avoid as much Creek as I could, I would have walked straight up that path. Very cool. I, so I'll make two notes about the NRS boundary socks, uh, because I, I know a lot of people love them. Nick is one of them. He's definitely a sock fan. Um, and, and I think it's a great product, but a couple things to be aware of, uh, enough people in the improved photography have, com- have bought them now that I've heard several reports of leaks through the seams, uh, just where that, where they've kind of put that seam that they're, that it leaks through there. The other problem with the NRS boundary sock is it, it can be a lot to pack because now you can't just walk around in the sock. It's going to tear on the rocks and stuff. Um, so you got to bring an extra boot that can get soaked because afterward, obviously, you're going to want to put on dry shoes. So now you've got to bring an extra pair of boots and these socks, and it kind of gets to be a lot. Uh, a lot of people are instead choosing the over-the-boot waders um, so you don't have to bring the extra pair of boots. Uh, they're less expensive, but the the problem with those is if you go even one centimeter of that the water line gets above the, the waders, <laughs> it's just going to flood into your shoes. So uh, n- neither mm, one's perfect, but something to be aware of. That's a pretty high negative if the water gets in there. How heavy yeah. are those to carry? Do you know them well enough? Yeah, they're lightweight. They're, and there are a whole bunch of different ones, but it's basically just a giant plastic bag that goes over your boot. Oh, okay. With the, with the boundary sock, I use them. I have some keen water shoes, and they per- fit perfectly in those. And so I don't usually wear them with a huge, large boot. 
But um, also, if it's leaking a little bit for me, I don't care so much. I, I care more about the fact that the water is not just flowing right straight through. I view that more as like, kind of like a wetsuit. So if my feet get wet, I'm not that concerned about it for myself anyway. Cool. So they're still going to be warmer than not having them. Way yeah. warmer. So All if right. I were to pick another one, I would have to go with the photo diox. They say it says 36 inch Octobox and speed light mount. Something like that would be a fantastic, especially if, the, if you're shooting any kind of, um, well, from flowers to, to people to whatever, if you want some uh, extra light, uh, I use these kind of things, not the exact photodiox here, but I use these kinds of things in the studio at the school that I work at. Mm -hmm. uh, I teach photography and it's just great to have these type of lightweight, very modular uh, items that you can modify the light with in lots of different ways. Really good idea there. Very cool. Um, yeah, yeah, that, those are definitely cool. There's a different softbox, softbox that, uh, that I've been recommending, but that one does look good. Um, for me, I would say a really nice external hard drive. Uh, this is one that Jeff recommended, a Western Digital uh, external hard drive. I think so many people stress backing up their photos and are always dealing with, with uh, you know, hard drive anxiety um, that it's just go buy a really nice, big, portable external hard drive. And for <laughs> most people, that's going to be the answer. Uh, most people don't need a Drobo. Uh, most people aren't going to need five drives worth of stuff uh, because you know if you're just taking pictures uh, that you can fit a lot on a two terabyte or an eight terabyte uh, portable hard drive um, just an external uh, but if you if you are uh, running into problems I can recommend the Drobo now I had two issues early on with them um, but uh, but it's been flawless since then I think that I've been running it for three years now um, and every year around this time, I take one of my drives and I buy one of the bigger ones. Uh, right now, I'm taking one of my leftover threes and I'm replacing it with an eight because uh, I am hitting up to the limit of a five drive Drobo every single year, uh, especially because we're doing video. Uh, just producing so much video requires a huge amount of hard drive. Uh, I, I think I have... 19 terabytes of data now uh on the drobo so it's it's getting scary and those little passports are so easy to take with you i was following um following a lot of thomas heaton and watching his work and he talked recently about going to hawaii and being in zion and one of his backup methods is to have that little small hard drive with him after he's done taking shots for the day he transfers everything to it but he also doesn't format his cards the entire trip that he's out he keeps the cards full he has the he has the extra drive and the hard drive on his laptop that he has three different places that he's backed up his photos so if he's on a very special trip and he never wants to lose those shots that's a really awesome way to make sure that you have it without adding too much weight to your bag and just don't pack them all in the same bag on your way back oh right <laughs> all right so what do you say for the 500 dollars budget brent i'm going to go with the alien bees starter rig it's one of the things that are listed there the paul c buff alien bees i have four of those in my studio at the school and so it's just real quick fantastic. what are alien bees for those that don't know they are monolites, which basically means it's got everything you need within that unit. It, ha it has its own power source. It's got the modeling light, uh, everything you need to, for lighting a, a, a portrait set or whatever you're doing. It's not like a power pack unit where it has a central power pack and then it has wires that lead to each, each flash head. 
uh, where it's only just the tube, then it's it's got its own power unit in there in the body of the unit. <clears throat> Alien bees are kind of fun. They're quite affordable. The housing is plastic, so we have had some students trip over the uh, the stands, sending it flying, and they just crack like crazy. So you don't want to do that. But if you're not going to be wrestling with them in the studio, they're a great unit, and they have lasted us forever. The ones that didn't get tackled by students, they're lasting us forever. <laughs> they're very strong as far as the power. The You're recommending here the B800 units. That's, I find, almost too bright. Um, it's uh, We have several of the B400 units as well, and those are just great. Very cool. Yeah, I, I liked the Alien Bees for working in a studio. I have, They're extremely powerful. You know, when you want to take a picture, you can just go pop, 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 and that flash will always keep up with you. It's great. And the power is crazy, way more power than a, than a, a speed light can output. But oh, yeah. the drawbacks are significant in terms of portability. Unless you're doing a major on-location shoot, uh, this is really about being set up in a studio and left there. Uh, If you're doing anything else than that, I would personally just recommend just going to speed lights. Uh, But but some people really like doing it. They do sell a battery pack that you can attach to your light stand. And so you can have basically temporary power on location. Like if you were doing a shoot on the beach or whatever, you could do that. It's an extra couple hundred bucks for that battery pack. And I think they're heavy. And they're actually not terribly heavy, but they're, you know, they're, they're not walk around in the forest heavy though. This is like from your car to a building or something. You're not going to want to hike with these things. 10 pounds. Yeah. So it's, so it's not terribly heavy, but you know, if you're doing that kind of focus shoot where you're with your car, it's going to be great. And that would add a couple extra hundred bucks to your bill. If you're going to go with that, but it only powers two, it only powers two units. What do you think, Aaron? At $500, if you haven't already purchased the last tripod you'll buy for several years, I would definitely go with the Faisal CT3442 Turbo. Great choice. Love that tripod. Every time I take it out of my bag, my buddy Brendan Porter, he always gets jealous that his tripod is giant and heavy and cumbersome. And my Faisal just kind of floats in my bag. I forget sometimes it's even there. It's crazy light and crazy sturdy. I really, really love that tripod. I totally agree. I've had mine for years. Works great. Never had any stability issues. It's perfect. And it's super, super light and small. All right. Uh, we are moving to a thousand bucks. This is like a really nice Christmas present. And for <laughs> me, uh, I am going to recommend group on getaways or living social escapes. Uh, if you're in the United States, if you're outside the United States, just look for these daily deals, uh, kind of websites, uh, but they, they offer just incredible, incredible travel deals. I was telling my personal trainer about these at the gym today. It was like, so as we're, as you're looking for deals, this, <laughs> I hate going to the gym. I absolutely hate it. But I was telling him about it because they're such good deals. Um, You know, right now, in fact, definitely go check this out. Uh, Improved Photography is doing a completely free adventure in Ireland uh, coming up in uh, April or May. We haven't totally locked down the date. Nice. There's a link to it at improvephotography.com slash Ireland. Uh, this is a free thing. It's not a, a workshop. There's no curriculum. Uh, I've never been there, so I haven't scouted out the location. This is not it's like a, nice. a, a workshop. This is just like, hey, Jim's going to Ireland. Come shoot with me kind of deal. Um, and we found a sweet deal to get to Ireland. I want to say it was $700, including 
includes your international flight, your hotels, and your rental car for eight days in Ireland. Uh, mm. Really, oh. really awesome deals on there. Um, so uh, check wow. that out if you want to sign up. This is going to be flying out the door. Like, listen to this podcast the day it's released and go sign up immediately because we have to move very quickly to get this uh, right. to get this I thought deal. I was out for that trip, but this just suddenly made it possible. Yeah, it man, it's really, really cool looking. That's hard to say sure. no to. Where are you staying in Ireland? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna roam around. So the Groupon deal puts us kind of in South Central Ireland, okay. uh, but some of the cool coolest places are, are, are up in the north. And so I checked hotel prices, and it's not much. So I think we're gonna get this deal because it's a crazy deal. Uh, but then a lot of the days we'll just buy a separate hotel to be you know wherever we want it to be to shoot. Since, since you'll be in South Central, you'll probably be near the Rock of Cashel and Hoare Abbey, and you'll probably get down to Cork. Some beautiful locations. I've been to Ireland, and it's just phenomenally beautiful and you're going to love it. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. All right. 500, five or $1,000 budget. What do you guys think? I'm going to go with the Canon 100 28 IS macro. Uh, I'm a lens guy as probably many of you know, I have that in my rental inventory and uh, of all the, um, well, Canon makes two macro lenses that, that are really cool. I know they make a 60 millimeter uh, for like some five X, uh, work. I've not shot that one yet, but this is probably the most versatile macro uh, length. It's uh, at the hundred millimeters. It's a, just a awesomely sharp lens and it's hard to beat. If you've got a thousand dollar budget and there's any chance that you're uh, interested in those close in macro ideas, by all means, that's a fantastic buy. Of course, it works for portraits and other uh, items like that as well. So I would give my nod to that one. Awesome. I agree. I think a hundred millimeter focal length is about right for most for most macro stuff. Aaron, what about you? It's hard to say that this is actually something that every photographer should own, a $1,000 iPad Pro, but I love my iPad Pro, not just because I'm a huge Mac fanboy. I really, really love the giant screen. I am a tiny person at five foot five, and so maybe I'm compensating with a giant iPad screen, but when I use it connected with my camera, I can see all the details that I'm seeing back home on my laptop or my computer and seeing all the things that I'm missing in my composition, and I love connecting connecting it to my camera and setting up my shots that way. It is freaking brilliant. Very cool. So you're, you're connecting to this, to your camera wirelessly, I'm assuming. Yes. You and use the camera itself for the G for the Wi-Fi, and it actually sends the Wi-Fi signal to this no matter where you're at. It just becomes a small Wi-Fi station from the camera and it connects easily from wherever I stood 10, 20 feet away. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. I, that's something that I need to uh, take another look at. I went on this a little bit too early. Um, I, in fact, I had one of the very first videos online about how to connect a camera to an iPad using an iFi card and actually showing the live view. A lot of them could show you, you know, the picture after you took it, uh, but we, uh, you know, doing it live view was tough. Anyway, so we used to talk about that a lot, and I was really excited about that idea of getting a huge uh, look at your photo as you're taking it that's incredibly valuable as you're trying to make a nice composition uh, but it was it was just too early there was just too much setup too many bugs and now each of the camera manufacturers have really come of age with the, with their Wi-Fi and the apps mm -hmm. uh, each of the manufacturers do a fair job of it I wouldn't say anybody's just knocking it out of the park with their Wi-Fi app uh, but but they're at least functional on the, on any of the camera brands with the newer cameras. Cool. 
All right, now we are going into the crazy budget. 5,000 bucks. You got to buy yourself a photography present. Uh, for me, it is going to be the Fuji X-T2 camera with the trinity of lenses for Fuji. I'm not going to elaborate too much on that but uh, because I've talked about it so many times, but I really do like it. And the other one that I would be um, very tempted with is the DJI Phantom 4. Um, boy, drones are so exciting right now uh, in the marketplace. It's so cool the things you can do with them. Uh, I have one on order and it should be here any day. Uh, so I'm, I'm anxious to check uh, in with the DJI Phantom 4. This is the Pro um, that has the uh, the newer one inch sensor on it. So a, a significantly upgraded camera. So at that price, do you feel like you're better off with the Phantom 4 Pro than going with the Inspire? <laughs> Well, yeah, honestly, the Inspire is more like a $6,000 choice. Um, uh, you look at the Inspire and it's 3000 bucks just for the Inspire itself. And then by the time you get several batteries, you're definitely going to need a case. Um, you know, uh, all the different things you're going to actually need for. It. And to get the good camera on the Inspire is going to get 1500 bucks. Um, so by the time you get an Inspire and you really outfit it to make it, you know, really usable, you're more in the $6,000 range, uh, which that's, that's too rich for my blood, man. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, photography awesome is business. my, my business. Like I, I need to do some things and kind of be on the cutting edge of it, but no, man, that's too much money. <laughs> that's too much. All right. What do you guys think? I would have to go for, it says photography workshop here. I'd have to go for something experience oriented. And even if you're not going on a workshop, then certainly just go somewhere yourself uh, if you feel confident in where you're planning to go and the like. Uh, workshops can certainly help for uh, just camaraderie and learning something new. But ha having an experience, if I had a budget like that, um, I would say, boy, give me that experience. You can spend 5000 can take you uh, four weeks somewhere probably. So, you know, if you, if you had the time off work, go for it. Make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Nick just announced uh, some extra spots in his Palouse workshop. So it'd be a great use for it. And then you can yeah, pocket some money too. two openings. So by the time people hear this, they're probably going to be gone. Yep. Yeah. You got to buy it now. Aaron, what do you have here? I would definitely want to go in an experience. If I had the 5,000 to spend, I'd want to go to all these awesome places that I've been wanting to go and go with the group, especially go with you guys to Guayland, China. Oh, that would be sweet. That was awesome. Them. Oh, I've been jealous of those shots and jealous of everything I've seen from it. But if I didn't have the trip and I had something else I wanted to help me here, I would definitely get a better, stronger, more powerful, larger hard drive computer. Right now I'm dealing with lots of gigs of video, lots of gigs of camera shots, and it'd be really great to have something that's going to scream and connect well and not have the same problem I have where I'm constantly throwing two, 300 gigs off of the hard drive to an external just so that I can make the next video. Right. Are you on Windows or Mac? I'm on Windows and a Mac, but my desktop is a Windows PC. Cool. All right. Well, lots of great things we talked about here, uh, different gifts uh, for photographers. Um, be sure to check out the article, the uh, 2016 Holiday Gift Guide from Improved Photography. And thanks to Jeff Harmon for putting that uh, that article together. Uh, be sure to check out his podcast, uh, which is Photo Taco on the Improved Photography Network. Well, we have lots more to talk about in this episode. Uh, one thing we want to talk about today is five reasons 
not to shoot Fuji. Now, <laughs> I put this in the show notes and I said, all right, what, do you, what else do you guys have to add to this? And Brent was like, I don't know. I love Fuji. <laughs> and that's how I feel too. I totally feel you, Brent. Uh, I love Fuji. I shoot Fuji. I definitely don't regret switching to it. Uh, but uh, having spent enough time in, in Fuji world a couple of years now, uh, there are a couple things that are driving me bonkers. And so I wanted to talk about some of the drawbacks. Uh, the first, and I would say the primary reason to not choose Fuji right now is the 10 to 24 millimeter lens. Uh, it's the really the only wide angle lens. They have a couple other primes and such, but it's the one, it's the one that you're going to get if you're uh, getting your wide angle lens which is obviously what I use the most often. Um, and it is not weather sealed. It's completely unacceptable, completely unacceptable to have one wide angle lens and have it not be weather sealed. Uh, I used to not freak out about not weather sealed because I used lots of Nikon lenses that weren't weather sealed and they did fine for me in the rain. This lens is very not weather sealed. I can't tell you how many nights and mornings I've spent in a hotel room blow drying my 10 to 24 so that I could get it to work on the camera. Just drives me crazy. Wow. Uh, so that's uh, my primary reason not to choose uh, Fuji. How about you guys? Well, if, if What's your number one reason to not shoot, pick up a Fuji camera? My reason right now is the crop sensor. I don't have a crop. I don't have a full frame Fuji that I can think of that I really, really want. I like the full frame sensor and I don't need to go mirrorless right now for any of the reasons in my shots. And it sounds like the lens choices would kill it too for me. Yeah, I, the, if you're a lens proliferator, if you're the kind of guy that likes, uh, or gal, uh, who likes to have, you know, 15 different lenses, Fuji's not a good choice. Uh, they have 15 different lenses, but it, there's just not the huge variety of lenses. Uh, but they have a very solid, uh, you know, 7200 equivalent, 24 to 70 equivalent. Um, and the 10 to 24 is a very sharp lens. It's a good lens. It's just not weather sealed is the problems. And it's super lightweight. Um, you know, they have a macro, they have a, a long lens. Uh, but, you know, if you're shooting something specialized, sports photography, some kind of very special macro stuff, uh, then, you know, Fuji is not going to be a great choice. They do make a, a, long, a long lens. They do make a macro, but it's just not for the lens proliferator. And next, the prices are increasing significantly for Sony. Uh, when I switched, uh, one of the main reasons to switch was it was way less expensive uh, than the full-frame DSLR gear. And now that's true, but not by a lot. Every time Fuji is releasing a new product now, they're bumping prices 20, 30% on what it, what it used to be. Uh, so another reason not to choose it, although still cheaper uh, than, than full-frame DSLR world. And the last thing that I'll mention on uh, five reasons not to choose Fuji uh, are their horrible uh, community connections. Um, to be fair with this, none of the camera manufacturers are great, um, but Fuji is is really doing a poor job of this. Scott Bourne started a podcast called We Love Fuji. Did any of you guys listen to that when it was on the air? I've not heard that one, no. Uh, he had a podcast about it. It was like, we love Fuji. They were just talking about Fuji stuff, giving tons of publicity to Fuji, and they could not get Fuji to respond to them. And over a year of podcasting, he's a big name in photography, that's just embarrassing. Uh, it's embarrassing for the camera manufacturer that they would just 
not care that much about connecting with the community of their users. Um, Canon and Nikon, I would consider no better um, than this. Uh, And an example of this, when we talk about any brand on on this podcast, we get an email from them like that. Uh, We always hear, you know, if we mention something negative about a a tripod, you know, a third party lens, a Sigma or Tamron, something like that, uh, you know, whatever it is, we mention a photography product, we get an email from them. They, They hear about it. I have never once ever, ever heard any email, any phone call, any, any connection from Canon, Nikon, Fuji, Olympus, none of them, no camera manufacturer. I don't know why they're so out of touch with the community of photographers, uh, but they, they just really are. Uh, It's crazy. That's really astounding to me, especially with the community of photographers. When you come out here, if you're a new person, you come into the photography world, you click on YouTube. And if on YouTube, every person you found was talking Fuji, talking Fuji, because they're not going to be talking Canon or Nikon because they were given anything. You'd think that Fuji would have a chance to really saturate the market with good, positive feedback of their cameras and then make it something that's a harder choice for a new guy to choose. I had a few different videos I watched different people I respected and saw them using a Canon so it made it easy for me to choose a Canon if I saw Fuji as often as I saw a Canon 5D Mark III I might have been thinking about going Fuji long ago yeah, I, I, it's it's crazy. I, I have no explanation for what they're thinking there, uh, but uh, those, the camera manufacturers just do not care is all I, is all I can say about that. So those awesome. are a few reasons not to choose Fuji. But again, it's a brand I love. If you want to find out more about it, uh, go to improvephotography.com and just search Fuji in the search box. I have lots of articles about why I switched to Fuji and, and a lot of the things that I've found there, as well as reviews of some of their gear. Well, uh, Aaron, you've done some cool stuff with shooting GoPros into the stratosphere. Uh, I saw this on your YouTube channel. I thought it was cool. So how do you do this? What is this? And why would someone want to shoot up a camera into space? Oh, initially for me, it was because I've been taking a lot of astrophotography shots and fighting light pollution in the environment and going miles and miles away to find the really, really dark sky sites and fighting the timing with the moon and everything. And my father-in-law comes up to me on my birthday and says, here's your present. And he hands this little paper that he's folded in half. And I look at it going, what on earth am I getting for my birthday? And it has a guy's name and a phone number. And it's a contact with extremespaceadventures.com. And these guys, they regularly send balloons into space with the payload and they put their own cameras on there. And he talked to him already and said that he was willing to send your camera into space and my mind blew like you're serious i can attach my camera put it on this little payload and send it up above the light pollution up above all the clouds that i usually have to time around and have a beautiful shot of the milky way so i was stoked i was working with brendan porter on photog adventures and we said this is something we've got to do and extreme space adventure said that they could send one pound into space and that killed a lot of my dreams really fast. <laughs> I thought, okay, uh, my camera's out. My Great, lens half of one lens. Thanks, guys. <laughs> right? And so then we started looking only at our GoPros. Okay, how much does this GoPro cost? We have a black a GoPro Hero 4 black that's got the extra battery pack, and that was less than a pound. So they're also- attaching this to a weather balloon or what? 
Yep, it's just like a weather balloon, just a giant helium balloon. And with strings, they attached it to a Walmart lunchbox. Believe it Very or not, professional, the nice. They have is a lunchbox. It's this tiny little thing that's insulated. It has a nice pocket to put their radios in and a separate compartment for us to put cameras that they've cut holes out for that you can point the cameras out. And so it actually works really well. And so we've been working with them on that. And we had the chance to connect only GoPros. So it was video footage only. And so if you saw the footage, Jim, did you see how crazy wavy and busy and it was just never really uh-huh. settling down? That was a huge disappointment for us. We found out quickly how crazy busy the wind can turn that, that payload that they have just on strings. They're just at the mercy of any movement the balloon does and every wind that comes by. And so we couldn't get a really steady shot, but it was really awesome to get that thing to go 100,000 feet up in the sky, see the earth. The GoPros, they put an extra curve on the earth with their wide angle lenses. That's right. Awesome to see it from up there. And then- But how do you get it? Like- How do you get them up there? No, how do you get it? How do you get your camera back? Like, is it tethered? It can't be tethered up to 100,000 feet. (laughs) Yeah, it sure can. This little payload goes up with the balloon. And once it hits 100,000 feet, the helium in there, depending on how much you put in, it gets to a certain point where it expands to 40, 50 feet wide. And then it bursts. And then a drag chute, not a parachute, a drag chute is attached to the payload. What's that? It's basically just a bunch of fluffing bags that aren't going to hold air perfectly and cause it to hit the jet stream and then float 800 miles. It's just enough to slow it down to a certain miles per hour. So we're talking it drags through the atmosphere instead of falls straight. And so all that payload is connected to this drag chute, connected to the balloon. And once the balloon disengages and bursts, that drag chute's engaged and it just pulls down. And it went up in just north of Wendover in Nevada and came down 70 plus miles over in Utah next to the So how do you find it then? That is the hard part that we went through and it shouldn't have been so hard. All they have were two radio antennas connected to the top of this payload and that's constantly communicating with GPS and it's connecting with ham radio communication towers and sending out a signal saying, here's where we are. And then that information is decoded by the ham radio towers and that digital signal said, okay, here's where they are. It's this latitude and longitude on GPS. And so we depend on that to tell us where it is. And in our case, it actually found a dead zone at 10 thousand feet and where it landed the gps towers could not see the radios anymore. so you have like this gps tracker that what comes to your phone and tells you where where your lunchbox is <laughs> where's my lunchbox in the desert this is not a gps tracker they tried cell phones initially and some gps trackers it's ham radio antennas connected to it and powered up that are constantly sending out a signal so every four minutes they're alternating so you get a signal sent out to a ham radio tower every two minutes minutes and ham radios can communicate with it all the way up to a hundred thousand feet okay all right so so okay so i find where my lunchbox is 70 miles away how, how long is this is this like the next day or an hour later or what it all depends on the wind and that night we were sitting there driving on the freeway heading south thinking we'll look out in the dinner and we'll see where it's going and they see in the radio that oh wow it's actually going this way so we turned around illegally on the freeway flipped a ue where only the cops do it and went back up only the, road. the cops and aaron king <laughs> yeah we just go for it 
we were allowed. So we went up this little tiny highway and drove it all the way across the border of Nevada following above us. We had balloon information coming down saying this is where it is. And we were just like twister, where we're all chasing the tornado that's in the distance and reading it off of our systems that are on the laptop and driving as fast as we can. And you can potentially pick it up that same night. It just depends on whether it's gotten dark, whether the payload actually landed in an area that's close to a road that you can drive up to it, or if you have to hike 16, 20 miles in off of the nearest road to get to the payload. Wow. Okay. So, so you find where your, where your lunchbox is and then you got, you got your video. And so how much does it, what does this cost a man? How, how do we do this? Well, if you're going to actually fly up a helium, you got to pay for a helium in the balloon. That's only cost you really have to deal with after you've already purchased your $12 Walmart lunchbox. And so we split the cost with Extreme Space Adventures and it only cost us at Photog Adventures $175 to do. Huh. All right. This is cool. I might have to shoot something into space. I don't know what, maybe it's an NRS boundary sock. Just something. <laughs> no. <laughs> something we got to shoot Search. into space. This is, this is great. All right. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what to do with this information that has come to my life now. Uh, but, but I do know for sure that there is something that I'm going to need to shoot into space. Oh, uh, not, not sure what it is Adventures.com and go to their website and see they'll collaborate with you and make it really easy. They're getting the technology that we didn't have on this trip to actually recognize where the payload is even if ham radio towers aren't seeing it as long as you're within a certain mile radius of your payload it'll send out a signal to you that will decode right there and say oh okay it's at this exact gps coordinate and then you can work out your plan on how best it is to get there very cool that that's cool well for two balloons though next time so you can send up a heavier camera we actually had two balloons on this trip oh well three or four then we can't tether them if you tether the balloons you cause yourself to have a major tangle with everything and you can't use them to do that but we can save weight on the lunchbox and try and really 3d print something that's going to carry everything and maybe get away with some extra stabilization and that's something that we're trying to troubleshoot right now and engineer an answer for well, I know some people with a 3D printer, so let, let me know if you need need some help there. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> Very cool. Well, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the leading provider of uh, photography websites for photographers. If you're looking to create your online portfolio, you want to sell your photography on, on a website and uh, finally put together a a portfolio something Jeff Harmon has been talking about a lot is putting together your your 10 best photos from each year uh, getting your website up is a great way to do that uh, it's easy it's an intuitive process you don't have to be technical to, to do it they'll give you a free domain name you know you can choose your whatever it is dot com um, and you have beautiful templates and e-commerce built in Squarespace is a great way to build your photography portfolio or any um, any website you need you can sign Sign up and get your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your purchase. And we thank them for their support of the podcast. 
and also by Fracture. Fracture is an excellent choice, especially this time of year, uh, for printing really interesting, beautiful prints. Um, the things that the thing that I love about Fracture is that there's something different. Uh, it's not like the you know just regular print that you can order from anywhere. Um, this is printed directly on glass, so it's just really saturated colors, a modern look, uh, and you don't have to pay to get it get your art framed. It looks great uh, right out of the box. Um, Fracture uh, has lots of stuff going on for the holidays. You can check them out at FractureMe.com slash podcast. That's FractureMe.com slash podcast. And don't forget to mention improved photography in their one question survey. Well, uh, we have lots more to talk about in uh, in this episode. One thing that you want to talk about, Aaron, is just getting out and shooting. So what do you have for us? Well, my buddy Brendan Porter and I decided this year after going out at one in the morning to capture the first Milky Way of the year that we really just don't get out enough with our cameras. And you have all these excuses like a day job or families and you think, how on earth could I possibly go out the camera that often, especially if I'm trying to capture X or capture this. And we found that the best time for us to get out was after the kids were in bed, their wives are going to bed and yeah, maybe you're not working at the night so you can go out and yeah, you lose sleep. But we found ways to get out there. And it's just something that this year has been amazing, just making an effort to go out to one major place a month. And what that meant for us was that we rented a car and we said, okay, this weekend we're going somewhere. We had the car rental paid for, so we couldn't back out of it. And we wanted to make sure that we went and we discovered something in our area. We're fortunate to be here in Utah where we have tons of locations that we can get to quickly and spend a weekend at and have a blast. Cool. Yeah, I, I that's exactly how I got started in, in doing photography as, as a business was uh, everybody would go to sleep and I'd head out and do some night photography. <laughs> and that really took my my uh, my photography a lot, a lot further once I did that. You know, there are so many excuses to not go out and shoot. Uh, like you mentioned, ah, family or ah, I've got to work or ah, it's too expensive. But there's really no good one uh, because no matter what you're doing, there's time for photography, you know, wake up an hour early and go take a macro on the, you know, the dewy grass and the mushrooms outside, whatever it is, there's, uh, there's always time. Uh, photography does not have to be expensive. People do incredible things with iPhones, uh, but, but getting out there and just making the decision to get out is, is how you get better. And some people start thinking they want to have a portfolio to show off, but then they think it needs to come to them over time or it comes to them because they're more able to spend money doing it or they could buy the right gear. It's not about that. You need to realize that your portfolio is something that you're going to make and it's going to be something you make while it's very inconvenient to do. And you just have to lose something, sacrifice something. And in our case, it was sleep and weekends and it worked. And our building our portfolio happened very easily. It just came naturally. It was almost something where you can say over 50% of it is just getting out there and the rest is camera gear and composition and talent. Yeah, it's, it's definitely true. 
Well, uh, we wanted to include in this podcast a little information about diffraction. Um, so let's just knock out some of the, the basic stuff to begin with um, that I think a lot of the people listening to the show know. And then we're going to get into some uh, more advanced and interesting stuff. Some of the stuff that I don't understand, but Brent does. And he's going to tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, so diffraction, just in the simplest terms, is when you squish your image with your aperture too much uh, as you get to those very tiny apertures f18 f20 f22 heck f40 uh, it causes softness in the image um, and so generally when we're shooting landscapes I'm not going to recommend to go over f16 or f20 usually when I'm shooting uh, when I'm shooting landscapes I'm usually at f16 uh, I find that to be uh, a good uh, midway point between uh, getting a nice so a nice sharp image and also getting the depth of field that I want um, but it obvi obviously depends on every camera and every lens uh, it's a little bit different um, and there are lots of ways that you can prevent it such as focus stacking and things like that um, so that's diffraction just kind of your crash course but we wanted to talk about some of the more advanced things uh, about it uh, and one of them is coma I know you deal with that a lot in your night photography Aaron yeah, that's an issue that you really have to pay to fix or you have to bring your aperture up or you bring it down. So you're wanting to sit at 2.8 or if you have a 1.4 aperture, you can fix the coma by shrinking that aperture just a little bit and going at a higher f-stop. And then you can get rid of the coma and the angel wings that happen in those corners. So tell that, us, to those who don't know what coma is, let's, let's talk about it from the beginner and then get deeper. Okay, you bet. So when you're taking a photo at night and you're dealing with all the stars, the center part of your lens is gonna have the sharpest looking stars. In the corner in some glass, you're gonna find that the stars that were once little dots in the center become this angel wing that spreads off of it. And you'll see it where the vignetting would happen. You see that the stars are spread out to look like angels flapping wings instead of just a tiny dot like you really want. And it's not your focus and it's not something that you've done by pointing it in the wrong spot. It's just going to happen on any star in that corner, depending on your glass or your f-stop. When you call it angel wings, it makes me want to go and capture that even more because, you know, <laughs> angels are good, right? Yeah, right. Every time a bell rings, let's, the yeah, coma appears so in a photo. <laughs> let's, let's just go out and do that. It is Christmas. So let's no, this is astrophotography. These are dark angels. These are oh. angels of death, and they're ruining oh, your portfolio man. because you have too many of them. They're basically a foreboding message that says this shot's going to suck if you don't fix that. Yeah, so but that's, a com uh, that's a completely different type of diffraction that's happening from what Jim was saying about when you stop it down. Because like you had mentioned, Aaron, when you stop down, you're going to uh, eliminate some of those angel wings. Uh, also, like you mentioned, too, you have to pay basically to, to remove it. Um, do you mean pay as in time afterwards in correction or pay for getting some really quality lenses to, to remove that? Because some lenses like the Canon 24 F1.4 actually is probably the worst, at least so that I've shot of these angel wings happening in the corners. It doesn't actually have to be money you pay because there are options out there and post-processing can't recover a commemoration all that well, yeah. but you can do some distortion and warp that you want to do in Photoshop sure. to maybe fix it. Really, there's a very cheap lens out there, the Rokinon slash Sam Ying Run.4 that is an awesome mm -hmm. lens for astrophotography. This thing has manual focus only, so it's not going to serve you great on landscapes, but this 24 millimeter or the 14 millimeter Rokinon, it's fantastic and has a wide open aperture at 1.4, it still doesn't have the coma that you would see in the Canon 16 to 35. Right. And Zeiss has one, their 25 F2. 
beautiful, very slow uh, vignetting as well. Beautiful in the corners. That's uh, one of the sharpest I've seen for Astro work. It's I would like a little bit wider, but you know when you're on a full frame camera, uh, I wouldn't shoot that Astro work on a on a crop sensor. But uh, for a full frame, I I can usually get some pretty good compositions with the Zeiss. But with uh, the type of diffraction that Jim was talking about and mentioning. Um, where we're dispersing light, basically, as it passes through a small hole. Uh, that's just what we want to uh, kind of think about and and look at as well. And I found a, a nice uh, article on Cambridge in Color. Uh, it's spelled the English way, so you throw, throw in the U in there. And they've got a great thing on lens diffraction. Now, I found it just by doing a Google search. And I have a blog post on my website, uh, brentrenslenses.com, and look at my blog, and you'll be able to find kind of an intro to, to diffraction. But then uh, I link here to this uh, more in depth. And so basically what it goes through, uh, lots and lots of scientific uh, renderings and data and just telling you all about diffraction. One of the neat things that I found, they actually have an aperture versus pixel size uh, little chart thing that you can click on. So if you have a different aperture, like, oh, what if I'm at f5.6? You can see on this particular camera what that, uh, what they call the circle of confusion or what the aperture diffraction is going to be. Uh, for each pixel. And so you can understand then, oh, for my camera, I need to make sure I'm not at a certain f-stop before I'll start to see it taking over my images. And it just becomes really soft. <clears throat> and I have an example too. I, I shot with the uh, Canon 11 to 24. That's a $3,000 lens. And you'd think that it's going to be just a fantastically sharp lens throughout. But I shot it at f22. And I realized everything is just really soft. I really don't like what's happening here. And so um, I started thinking a little more about diffraction. I was like, well, I know diffraction happens, but here's a shot where I'm actually bummed out about it. And I wish I had done some focus stacking so I could have my infinite depth of field. Are we talking about like a 5% less sharp or are we talking about like you look at it and you're like, that's blurry? Yep, yeah, that's blurry. So oh, really? My, I'm surprised it would be that bad. Got, on my blog post, I've got... Uh, examples and so you can click on it I even offer the the raw files there so people can download and look at them themselves now you do it's not you're not going to notice it's that blurry when you're having a low res uh, like Facebook style picture mm. uh, the f8 and the uh, the f22 as far as sharpness is concerned looks just about identical you can tell there's still a little bit of depth of field difference because the trees in the background that are, are out of focus but when you look at the the one-to-ones, like if you're trying to make a nice large print, like 16 by 20 print, absolutely go with the F8 version because you're going to see uh, considerable uh, softening. And so I was at F22 at 11 millimeters, and that's when you have it the worst. Basically, you're really wide open, or excuse me, really wide angle, and you're also really stopping it down. You're going to get lots of diffraction because what's happening is, as they say at Cambridge of Color, it disperses the light or it diffracts the light as it passes through a small opening. And so it's normally negligible as they say. So, you know, when we're at F8 or so, that's roughly the sweet spot of that lens and most lenses roughly is at F8. It's just when we start stopping down more, the benefits of stopping down, because every lens sharpens up from their wide open. So every lens sharpens up to, you know, you get to F4, if you're in an F2.8 lens, it gets a little sharper. But once you get past that, sweet spot, you start to see the effects of diffraction. What I've also noticed is it doesn't happen so much on as noticeably on a longer lens. 
Uh, certainly still happens, but it's not as noticeable in a longer lens. And then also, as they were saying in Caverns in Color, the blue wavelengths don't diffract anywhere near as uh, as much or as quickly as the red wavelengths. So the longer the wavelength of light, the more it's going to diffract uh, more quickly. So it also depends on your subject matter. And since the subject that I was shooting is fall color, that's yellow and red. And so that's going to diffract more quickly than if it were blue. In your situation where you had F-22 and you saw the diffraction and you recognized it was soft, was it something that was globally soft or just in certain areas it was localized to certain areas in the lens? It was globally soft. Uh, I noticed it first in the center of the lens because that's where my main subject was, is near the center. But when I got out to the edges, I could see like in the, the trees in the background, they were more, quote, in focus because they were rendered more sharply than the F8 uh, version was. But there was still some softness there. I was just like, oh, this is just terrible. I really don't like that. And I'm all like, you know, this is a wonderful lens. And I'm just going crazy here. But it's just one of those things. Money doesn't change optical physics. It's just the way it really is. So, so else, what does that mean, though? You were talking about the blue and the red. So yeah. blue things exhibit. So the blue wavelengths are a lot smaller. And uh-huh. the and the red wavelengths are a lot longer. So basically what's going to happen, I'm looking at the chart here. What's going to happen is at the 400 nanometers, that's where your ultraviolet becomes violet. And then your 450 nanometers, that's where it's blue. You're hurting my brain. Oh, I know all these numbers. <laughs> so what is the, so what does it mean though? Like, like what, what does that tell me as a photographer? It means basically that it just has less of an opportunity to be disturbed by the opening of your lens, if we could call it that, by the So funnel. if something is blue and I take a picture at it at F40, something's absurd, you're <laughs> yeah, telling me it's going to have less diffraction problem than if it were red? That's correct. So maybe think of it this way. Let's say if you had, uh, you had a large funnel uh, that was just slightly larger, the opening on a funnel was just slightly larger than, say, a ping pong ball. All right. Uh So if you throw that ping pong ball through the funnel, you're going to get some times where it just sails directly through and you're not going to have any problem, you know, nothing but net, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Although in this case, no net. Um, Sometimes, though, many times that ping pong ball is going to hit the side of that funnel. It'll eventually get through, but it's going to hit the side of that funnel and it's not going to get through undisturbed. It's going to be diffracted or spread out. Whereas if you take a BB, and you try to toss it into that same opening, you're going to get a lot more. That's the, the smaller wavelengths of light. You're going to get a lot more passing through that are undisturbed. And so that's that's why the blue light, being that it's a smaller wavelength, it gets through more easily or undisturbed in that case. It doesn't diffract as easily. Does that help? That helps. <laughs> I, that helps. I, hey, I'm just going to remember next time I'm like, hey, diffraction, point this as something blue. I'm well, uh, let's look at it this way. If you're shooting something blue, go ahead, go to F22, go to F29. Let's, let's do this. At least a little okay. If you're shooting something yellow or red, then maybe not so much. Uh, there's another thing, another uh, item that we have to think about too, and that is most of our cameras, unless you're on a, uh, a Fuji uh, system, which has a different pattern, uh, or unless you're on a... Um, What's the one that Sigma has? The Foveon sensor, where it records every wavelength of light at every uh, photo site. 
we have to think about the green wavelengths too, because that's closer to the blue. Uh, but on your regular bear sensors, there's twice as many on the green wavelengths as there are the red or blue. And so that also plays into it as well. And so when you have uh, something that's predominantly green, you have more rendering of that green on your sensor. And it's just, it, it behaves differently. What they're saying here at Cambridge in Color is basically what it turns down comes down to is a lot of stuff. A lot of factors go into it and they're just kind of giving you all the details saying this, that, the other thing. It's a good read if you really want to hurt your brain. Uh, <laughs> science of light and what happens as it travels through your lens and hits that sensor. So if you're a landscape photographer in the fall, you need to glue yeah. your f-stop at f-16 and not go any higher? For most lenses, I would probably be nervous about doing f-6, anything beyond f-16 if sharpness throughout is, you know, and I, I'm talking about like absolute sharpness is, is of utmost importance. There are going to be some instances or some use cases where you're going to say, you know, my intention is this is going to be viewed on screen and this is going to be viewed on Facebook or what have you. And the depth of field is way more important than for me to worry about diffraction. That's where I'm just like, you know, just give it up and just stop thing. it down. Get your depth of field where you want it and be all right. The challenge I was having where I was at, the main subject was uh, roughly nine inches, give or take maybe eight inches away from my, from my lens. And the closest focusing that that camera does, that lens does, I think is in the neighborhood of 11 inches. So I was already trying to use the depth of field to pull that main stump in focus. And so I had to be at F8 for that. When I went further to try and also get the trees in the background also in focus, then that's when it fell apart and just like really soft on the on that stump. Huh, very interesting. All right. Well, in every episode, we want to share with you a doodad of the week. Uh, mine is, I just found a great deal on a SanDisk Extreme Pro 64 gig card. I've mentioned before that I'm only buying 64 gig and up, usually 128 now. Uh, but I bought this for the DJI Phantom. Um, the Phantom can shoot 4K video at 120 frames a second. That's a lot of data coming in. Um, and so I... Um, I wanted to get this one that uh, is the highest spec that the Phantom can actually address uh, that is the UHS-3. Um, so uh, that's uh, what I picked up. I found a little Black Friday deal on it and uh, got that one. How about you, Aaron? Well, since we're talking about being extra particular about our sharpness, I think this works really well for those of you interested in astrophotography. Many of you have had the same issue that I've had where you get out there, you focus, you follow advice where you go and you magnify to 10 times on a very bright object. Specifically, a planet is the best if you can find one of those because they're the brightest object out there and they're still. You focus in on that and you feel happy about it and then you get home and you see that it's just a little off or just not right. I found myself doing that all the time so I recommend this little doodad it's just a loop and I'll put it up to the camera it's a tiny magnifier loop it's 10 times power and using this guy putting it right up against my LCD screen and looking close I can have that one star that I'm focusing on you probably if you've done it before you've been in a situation where the one star you can focus on is still really small on the screen at 10 times and you're just squinting and squinting trying to hold yourself still so you can watch that change as you rotate your focus ring. When I get this out, 
and put this bad boy right up against the screen and get that up to my eye, I am looking at a giant blob and watching that blob contort and distort as I'm twisting that focus ring and I can get it to a point where I'm really confident that I got the star to its sharpest focus and then tape that off with my gaffer's tape I got in my stocking stuffer. Very cool. All right, how about you, Brent? I have chosen the Google Maps on your iPhone or Android. And the reason I'm choosing that is, Jim, that you had uh, in some previous podcasts talked about how you plan your trips mm -hmm. with using the My Maps uh, functionality that Google has. And you can plug in your hotspots. You're doing a lot of research. You plug in your hotspots. And now, uh, I know this has been available for at least a couple of months because I used it when I went to Europe. I went to Czech Republic, Poland, and uh, Germany about two months ago. And I use Google Maps all the time. And I was able to sign into my account and load in those those items that I had uh, researched and put in. So when I need to know where my Airbnb place is, it's already there. When I need to know, you know, where was that place that I was going to go shoot at, I can look at it, tell it, take me there. And the GPS just does it. And uh, it's a great, fantastic way to take your trip planning that you do in the office or the home computer, what have you, dump it on your phone and you've got it to, on the road with you. Very cool. Well, thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of the Improve Photography Podcast, and we will see you in another seven days.